Michael Rose, welcome to the Resign Worship Songwriting Podcast. Thanks, Joel. Really happy to be here. Now, tell us just a little bit of background about yourself. I mean, I know first up, I contacted you on a New Zealand email address, but you're in Nashville. So maybe explain that and then a bit more background about that. what's going on. Yeah, actually Memphis. So I am a, I am a Memphian. I have spent most of my life here um, outside of college in a two-year stint overseas in Kenya with my wife, Rebecca. And so we've, we've been working here in Memphis for the last 11 or 12 years. Um, but just before the pandemic, after uh, finishing up a PhD in Bible, I sort of filled out a practice application for this school in New Zealand called Kerry Baptist College that I knew nothing about and with no intention of leaving Memphis, really. And then uh, in the middle of the pandemic, fell in love with what Kerry's doing in Auckland and really around the country of New Zealand. And so my wife and I and our four kids, we decided to move and then we haven't been able to move because of COVID. So uh, right now I teach, I'm, I'm the Old Testament lecturer at Cary and uh, that's my job. And I zoom in to classes and staff meetings and everything else. So, um, but my background professionally before going into academic Bible stuff was in Christian community development work. So we worked on an agricultural development project in Nairobi and then for five years on a, in a community development project in this very uh, economically poor community in South Memphis where my family lives. So we got, we got here and to our, the church we're a part of in this neighborhood um, through that work. And then for the five years before I came to Cary, I was teaching community development to local pastors through a college here in town. So the interest in community development and sort of holistic mission in communities that have experienced injustice and poverty is what animates and drives my my work in the bible and a lot of my teaching so that's a little bit about me my kids are uh nine seven uh six no yes nine seven six and four just had a birthday so great um so for the listeners who already are thinking, that's interesting. Normally you get songwriters and um, worship <laughs> academics and so on. On um, Let's, so for the listeners, give a bit of background. You, uh, basically, you, you tweeted a sort of a series of tweets. I think it's a couple of weeks ago, not much more than yeah. that, which just kind of took off. Um, now, I don't know if you, you do this once a week just to wait and see which one really takes <laughs> off or you had something that was really on your heart. But can you just give us the, the broad gist of what you talked about and then maybe we can just dig yeah. into that a little bit. Yeah, it was a wild experience uh, to have the, you know, this tweet Twitter thread really take off. I've never had that experience before. And uh, I don't think I've, you know, I didn't know when I posted that this, the world would take this as the most profound thing I'd ever said. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the background is um, in 2018, I co-wrote a book called Practicing the King's Economy, which was about economic discipleship, um, how whole life economic discipleship. And out of that work, I started asking some different questions. And so for the last two years or so, I've been working on a new book with InterVarsity Press um, on just discipleship. So basically not that the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do justice, which I think we kind of generally know now, right? But 
that, you know, it seems to me as, as a um, sort of white middle-class American Christian in a community of Memphis that is deep, terrible racist history. And our church has this deep, terrible racist history. Um, we know we're supposed to do justice, but the problem is that we aren't just people. So I'm really interested in what scripture says about how we, we might become people who approximate God's justice. So just discipleship, discipleship oriented towards justice. And as part of that work, I started doing research on the Psalms. I was teaching a course on the Psalms this semester. And so I thought, you know, for this book on moral formation for justice, what, you know, might the Psalms not only have something to say about justice, but actually be uniquely suited to helping God's people become just. And I unearthed not a lot of new discoveries, but I found all of these scholars writing this brilliant stuff about this, you know, that singing um, and the Psalms in particular are, are uniquely powerful in terms of our ethics because they're words that we use to God, but they're inspired by God. So they're God's words to us for us to use to him. So it's as if God has learned our language mm. in order to teach us how to speak to him. Uh, or, or to use another metaphor that I've, I've come to like, they're like scripts that teach us the language of faith, right? And when you read the Psalms, you realize why it takes work to learn them because they don't talk to God the way that we talk to God, right? They're, they're in their praise, they're more expansive than we are. In their rage, they're more angry than we are. In their pain, they're more, you know, it's just these crazy language lessons that God has given us. Um, so I've been kind of immersed in in the Psalms for the last six or nine months with this question of justice. And there's been a lot of work done on lament. Soon Chan Ra's book on lament was really helpful for me some years ago. Um, Prince Strauss, an Old Testament scholar who's talked about lament. Walter Brueggemann has talked about lament. Um, and how, you know, both the hymnals and the lectionaries and contemporary Christian music struggle with lament. Mm. Um, and I, and so I was working on a chapter for this book and I was, you know, basically summarizing what they had said. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested in lament, but what I'm really writing about is justice. I wonder, you know, what it would look like if I kind of following in the footsteps, took a peek at some of the top worship songs and asked some of my own questions about justice. And I, you know, soon Chan Ra's work is way more comprehensive. All the other scholars doing work on this, I was just dipping my toe in, but I spent about, you know, an afternoon <laughs> looking at the top 25 CCLI songs, songs and just asking how do they compare to the way that the Psalms talk to God about justice. And what struck me was there are these dramatic differences, right? So the word justice is only used one time in the top 25. It's in a passing reference um, in a song. It's actually pretty good, I think. Um, but, but it's just once. Whereas, you know, um, the Psalms have more than 30, more than 30 of the 150 Psalms refer to one of the Hebrew words for justice. And that Hebrew word shows up 60 plus times in Psalter. So the Psalms are much more interested in justice. They make it one of the primary things that the Psalms praise God for. Like if you ask the Psalms, what do you praise God for? Justice is at the top of the list. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. You, O Lord, love justice and righteousness, right? So that's that's way understated in the Christian contemporary songs that are being sung. Um, the categories of people who are experiencing injustice are completely missing for the most part in the top 25. 
I was shocked. There's not one reference to the poor. Wow. Poverty is missing in these top 25. Um, the widow, the refugee, or the immigrant, the oppressed, these things are all go- are missing. There are a few references to the orphan, a couple, I think, in the top 25. One of them is very spiritualized. Yeah. Uh, one of them might be an actual reference. Um, and then just to summarize what I said in this Twitter thread, um, uh, the psalms in the or the songs in those top twenty five never argue with God or ask God any questions, which is a really dramatic difference in the psalms. Like you start the psalm, by the time you get to Psalm three, the psalmist is like, "Why?" You know? Yeah. <laughs> and these top twenty five worship songs never do that. They don't ask God any questions. So if you like prick the psalms, they bleed these like cries of the oppressed. Where are you? Why do you stand far off? That's just missing in these top 25 Christian worship songs. And again, I should say, I think this is a problem that's probably pretty typical of the hymnals and the lectionaries. And I don't think this is a Christian contemporary problem only, but I did point out in my Twitter post that a lot of these songs are written by a handful of organizations who, who, um, have some significant economic weight behind them, right? Yeah. They have millions of followers. They produce these hit albums. These are kind of people who have a lot of the um, responsibility for creating a lot of the content that gets sung by churches increasingly around the world. And so, you know, it just was striking to me that if we were just to rely on this list, we would not be singing like scripture sings particularly when it relates to justice. So that was kind of what I was posting about. Yeah. And it struck a nerve um, uh, with people, I guess. And, I, you know, it's funny because some people, I think part of the reason why it struck a nerve is because a lot of people are angsty about kind of, you know, the big, you know, uh, I'm an evangelical, so I can make fun of us. Okay, but like yeah. a, the, you know, big evangelicalism, you know, I've, I heard one time, somebody one time accused me of being part of big Eva, like big pharma, you know. Right. Oh, I've not heard that, but so, yeah, I see it. So, so I think people, you know, liked that I was kind of giving a hard time some of these huge shops, yeah. you know, Hillsong and whatever else. But for my purposes, that was just the little bit that I was contri- contributing in, in in the larger piece of writing that I'm trying to do. I actually think this problem is 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 broad and expansive. There is work being done. A lot of people responded to me and said, "Hey, do you know about this artist or that artist?" And yeah. I knew about some of them and some of them I didn't. Um, the problem is that I think for most Christians, most of the time, uh, what we're singing doesn't sound like what Scripture sings. And that's what I'm most interested in. That's a strong statement and a, and a challenging one, isn't it? Most Christians, most of the time, not singing what Scripture sings. Yeah. Let's uh, we'll, we'll dig into one or two of these bits. I'm, I'm interested in whether yeah. you've got any particular comeback or any particular responses that struck you. Maybe a yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it was really interesting because I, I do think a couple people like I, I'm not particularly in touch with people doing scholarship on worship. Mm. Um, and and I, I mean I've intersected a little bit. I've read, read a little bit, but that's you know I'm, I've been mainly inter- interacting with biblical scholars. And um, there were a couple of people on Twitter who are, um, and there were there was a couple of people who I think have been involved with the recording industry, and probably the most helpful response, which which I resonated with immediately, um, 
was, hey, bear in mind the top 25 is not what people write. It's what people sing. Yeah. Okay. And there was a couple people who said, actually, this artist, I wish I could remember the specifics and I can't. This artist who has this track on the top 25 has actually written this song over here that's dripping with references to the poor and people don't sing it. And so um, to use economic language, if there's a supply problem, there's also a huge demand problem, yeah. right? Christians aren't clamoring for why, oh Lord, do you sleep songs like you find in Psalm 44, for instance, or why do you stand far off in the time of trouble songs like Psalm 10? And so this is a massive, broad problem. It can't be blamed just on kind of the big sort of um, cultural kind of obvious trends. You know, it's really funny in my book, Practicing the King's Economy, you know, we kind of said everybody whines about the super rich and then acts like them yeah. in our own lives, uh, you know. Uh, and and I think maybe some of these people were pushing that back on me. Like it's easy to make fun of kind of like the – not make fun of, but to, to point to problems. It's kind of like mainstream, huge kind of musical mm -hmm. trends. But in fact, this – most of us get the music that we want, Right. And so I thought that was a really good comeback. The other thing that struck me is that people, some people really don't like, I kind of had this like, hey, by the way, if you think this is just about Christian contemporary music and you're like kind of snobbish about that, like, oh, we've got our hymnal. Yeah. Just be aware that there's been a lot of research done on your hymnals and lectionaries. And it says they're, they're actually struggle at this point as well. People really did not like that. And um, <laughs> some people really didn't like that. And I don't know all the hymnals and lectionaries well enough to know if they're right. But my hunch is, my hunch is a lot of people think they're singing the Psalms or Psalm-like songs more than they are. Right? So you, you know, you might not notice, like if you, if you recite a Psalm, for instance, every week in worship, you might not notice that some of the verses are being cut out. Mm. Like Brent Strawn points out that in the revised common lectionary, which is, is, you know, used globally, this is not singing, but, um, for readings, um, something like a third of the Psalms don't show up at all, but then another huge percentage of them are excerpted, right? They're, they're cut, they're edited. And if you ask what's edited, it's usually lament and imprecation, like laments and calls for God to forcefully deal with one's enemies. And what's interesting to me is that lament and calls for God to forcefully deal with one's enemies, those Psalms are usually about justice, mm. right? They're not simply about, oh, I had a bad day, or I don't like so-and-so. They're about the psalmist saying, God, justice requires you to do something. And so when we cut those out, we're actually cutting out resources for a topic that we care a lot about in theory, which is justice. Um, but we're, we're sort of undermining that by, by refusing those textual resources, right? And I don't want to suggest that it's easy to understand exactly how we should sing all of these psalms some of which have pretty disturbing imagery. But I do think there's a strong case to be made that um, we should somehow use them. Mm. I mean, that was, that's where I was going to go next to try and yeah. think about this a little bit because um, I think a, a lot of people listening would say, yeah, that what you're saying resonates with me. It makes sense. I'm just not quite sure what to do. And I guess our 
our particular community here is is of people who write songs that their yes. local church sings. That's the main the main audience. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- there's a role, there's an opportunity. Um, but help us just a little to think through, you know, where to start then in the Psalms, how to find a way into kind of mining the themes and uh, yeah. and, and singing the words of Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think, um, yeah, I've been trying to uh, write up an article uh, for, you know, based on this Twitter thread that would sort of summarize a few of these things, a little more expansion in lieu of this longer chapter for this book that's not, yeah, I'm not going to be done finishing it till next summer. So it'll probably come out, you know, whatever that is, almost two years from now. Um, so I've been trying to expand my thoughts a little bit. Um on this, I do think that I, I, I don't, uh, I'm Presbyterian, but I'm not one of the Presbyterians who thinks like, well, really, we should just be singing the Psalms. Okay. There are, you know, there are those of us out there. Um, I do think that if I were to summarize in a sentence in terms of singing, what I think our best ways forward would be, one is we really do need more musical arrangements of the actual Psalms. We really do need more of that. Um, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense given the command to sing a new song, you know, to never write a new song, yeah. but it certainly doesn't make any sense to never sing Psalms, right? Which is, I honestly think what most of us do. I mean, I think yeah. very few of us sing Psalms in their entirety very often, but then I think the other thing that can be done, and I would love for communities like yours to help me think through how to do this, but it seems to me that the Psalms should serve as an authoritative uh, paradigm against which to test new songwriting that we do. So in other words, it, it should serve as the measuring rod. So like, let's say we create new worship songs. How do we use the Psalms as like a test to say, right. okay, well, has the new stuff that we've created, does it have the same emotional range? Does it have the same uh sort of cadence and idiom, not literally the same cadence and idiom, because I, these are, you know, Israelite. It, contextual worship suggests we it shouldn't sound exactly the same in terms of like musicality yeah. and all that. But, but um, for instance, I think the psalm suggests you can say anything you want to to God as long as you say it to him and as long as you say it uh, uh, in his presence with Peter saying, you know, basically – where will we go, right? So the Psalms, you know, I've, I've used the analogy in, in classes that like the angry Psalms are like a husband and a wife sitting at the table when they have a relationship that's strong. So one can say to the other, this is how you really made me feel. And I'm not getting up from the table until we've sorted it out, mm-hmm. right? So those two moves to God and and not on the way out the door, Right. Uh, to me, are two of the principles for lament and imprecation that I I am sensing. So, you know, it seems to me like songwriters could be asking, do we sing that way? Do we give people that permission? Do we help them say that thing? You know, Brent Strawn is a friend. I've mentioned him a couple times. He's got this great essay. I can't remember where it is. Um, I can't remember where it is. Might be in the Oxford Handbook on the Psalms about psalms and trauma. And about how his his brother, um, Brent's brother, Brad Strawn, is a psychologist. And so they've done some work together. And there's all this research on how disclosing trauma is part of the healing process. 
suppressing traumatic experiences creates physiological harm, right? This is what therapists have discovered. And so then Strawn is saying, what if the Psalms are scripts that allow people to disclose trauma that's not exactly their own yet, like in a safe place to move towards that, right? What if this is a part of the way the community learns that traumatic experiences have to be disclosed to God, you know, it's all sort of thing. So we could be asking, do our songs help us do what the Psalms do? So I think we need new musical arrangements of the Psalms, but we also need songwriters who are immersed in the Psalms to such an extent that they can ask, does what our community is saying reflect that? Is it a creative new song in line with the Psalms, right? Um, does it have a recognizable family resemblance to the Psalter? Um, and probably that begins with praying these texts. I mean, personally, um, a few years ago, you know, this is kind of my second or third time to dig into the Psalms. And a few years ago, I mean, maybe this will change, but I just kind of decided whatever I do devotionally in my life, I'm never not going to be praying the Psalms. Mm. Like I, this is just going to be a core part of my hopefully daily life with God. Um, and that's been really transformative to me. And I think uh, we need songwriters who are committed to praying the Psalms personally, uh, because that too is how we learn the language of faith. Um, uh, Cause it's funny, you know, I'm going to just say this as a side and then I'll shut up. You know, a, a few of my students at Cary have sent me things that said, oh, doesn't this seem to be a great example of a modern day lament song or whatever that's maybe outside the word. And on a couple of cases, I've thought, no, that's actually a bad example in part because um, I think it's funny, uh, particularly as, as a lot of us are in increasingly post-Christian contexts, people are wrestling with their faith in new ways. You know, the idea that we can say uncharitable things about God is in vogue, right? You go on Facebook, yeah. you're, 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 the people in the pews are complaining about God, right? Uh, they're asking difficult questions, but what they're not doing is doing that to God, mm. right? There is a lot of anger about injustice, but is it expressed to God? Because to me, actually what we're seeing a lot of times when people kind of are, are struggling with their faith is that their doubts about God and their anger about suffering and injustice have not been allowed to be brought into God's presence where the Psalms would bring them. And so they're going out into the community in ways that are actually unhealthy from the, from a biblical perspective, right? Like, like again, to use the marriage, the marriage uh, example, I think that my wife, Rebecca should be able to say anything to me about how I'm making her feel. But I don't think she should feel the freedom to go tell, like, all of her friends how she feels about me before she's talked to me about it. Like, like there's, there's actually, it's actually possible to betray the relationship if, if other places are safer than the relationship itself. And um, Eric Zinger, who's written this really important book, A God of Vengeance, question mark, on the Psalms, you know, he says the Psalms are, are serious about the conviction that we can say anything to God, as long as we say it to him as our parent, you know? So those would be the beginning beginnings of thoughts that I, I would have about, you know, for songwriters who play this really crucial role. Um, another piece of feedback that I received and that I wholeheartedly agree with is that it's also not 
um, the worship leader's sole responsibility. Like some of these texts are dangerous, mm. right? Um, if used poorly. And so there needs to be teaching and preaching on the Psalms. It's not fair to put all the responsibility on this, um, on the guys, men and women up front singing, right? The pa- We need pastors and theologians and lay leaders and Sunday schools, whatever adult church education. If, if we really want to reclaim the language of faith as we encounter it in the Psalms, it's, it's a whole church issue. Um, and w- without that, we're, it's, it's not going to go very far, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me often when we talk about any songs that diverge from the the mainstream core themes of worship songs that it puts a de- it demands a change to your context as well as to your repertoire yes. it's, no, it's no good just throwing a song a song of imprecation into the middle of a three song devotional worship set in a, because because <laughs> what you the message you you're sending with those words is implied by the context you put it isn't it you've got to right. you've got to build a different house to to hold these things yes. in you got to look at your whole idea of what worship is i guess yes and what life with god is right like i um uh i mean i, I you know i have a very um kind of high view of scripture myself and I've taught in institutions that have very high views of scripture. But I mean, I have had the experience where you're in a classroom these people all believe that the Bible is the authoritative infallible word of God. And you read Psalm 44 and say, are you allowed to talk to God like this? And they'd be like, no. And they don't know what to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know how to, but like they are convinced and it's like something to do with Jesus, you know? And it's like, well, you know, actually, Jesus in Luke 18, you know, we, uh, and and I'm I'm an American, so, you know, translate accordingly. But, you know, in American evangelicalism, Luke 18's teaching on the, on prayer, where it's the tax collector and the Pharisee Mm. and the Pharisee is like such a judgmental jerk and the tax collector gets mercy and his sin. That is like fixed in our imagination. The priests immediately preceding teaching on prayer where Jesus gives them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart is the story of a widow saying, give me justice against my adversary. And Jesus says, if will not God, you know, the righteous judge answer that prayer. Right? So it's really interesting. We, 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 it, I think this is a, a point more generally, we believe untruths about the Old Testament because we believe untruths about the New Testament. And for the purposes of this conversation, we really do not, I think, fully um, – we need a much more well-rounded view of what it is when we are encountering God and what mm-hmm. God wants from us. But like, I think what God wants from us – the book of Job is another great place where you see this, right? Like Job – you know, yells at God about a lot of things. One of the things which is justice for like dozens of chapters, you know, Oh God, you deal with the wicked, prove it. Where, how often do the wicked suffer? You know? And his friends basically quote Proverbs at him for half the time. You know, sometimes they make some stuff up, but a lot of it sounds like Proverbs. And then God shows up at the end and is like, I am mad at the friends. They have not spoken to me as is right as Job, my servant, has. Hmm. God apparently wants like the Job kind of talk rather than the friends kind of talk. And I think the idea there is the exact same. God wants Job 
God wants a relationship, not um, a yes man or a yes woman, right? Um, if you're thinking about justice, you go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, God says to Abraham, I have chosen you. Why have I chosen you? To teach your children the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness so that you may be a vehicle of blessing to the nations. So you get this like charter statement. The people of God are going to be a community of justice as a vehicle of blessing to the nations. The very next thing that Abraham does, the first thing Abraham does after we're told that is argue with God about whether God should smite Sodom and Gomorrah. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right or not? That's what Abraham is arguing with God about, right? And so apparently God wants to kind of relate. This is the kind of relationship that God wants with us. And it's dialogical. It's back and forth. It's honest. It's submissive, no doubt, right? And it's oriented towards praise, no doubt. But along the way, it includes a lot of, of, of difficult conversation with God about justice, including in song. Um, and so I do think it is, it, it is, it is a rethinking from the ground up. And also, uh, and again, like, forgive me if, if I'm just going on and on here, all of this dynamic is deeply indicting of not just the structure of worship, but of the actual social location of the church. Right. Now, again, I can't speak to the UK context as well, but in the U S we are in the midst of a long term increasing of economic segregation in every area of society. Our neighborhoods are more economically segregated. Our schools are more economically segregated. Our workplaces are economically segregated. And there's good evidence that our churches follow that pattern, right? So um, as, as uh, you know, Mark Gornick puts it in, in one of his books, you, quite literally in the American church for many of us, the poor are no longer with us, mm. right? They may be out there, but they're not in church. And so... Um, you know, that lovely song, uh, from the top 25, are you hurting and broken within? Why the delimiting there? Why the focus on within? Because that is what middle-class people are dealing with. Middle-class people like me. Yeah. That's what we go to therapy about. I go to my therapist about that. That's what we talk about in church. We wrestle with these kind of internal things. Good news. The Psalms are oozing with material for those concerns but they're also oozing with material for concerns about the wicked oppressing the poor, the violent appearing to win in their exploitation of the orphan and the widow and the refugee. And those concerns, which are right alongside sort of the internal kind of emotive, emotional struggles, right alongside one of their psalms, just get ex edited out of our singing. And I think it's an indictment of who we're singing with oftentimes. Mm. Right. And, and, and so, um, because what happens if you're praying a psalm of imprecation where, you know, the psalmist says, you know, melt my enemies like snails into slime. Uh, if you're me, I think what's supposed to happen is you quickly realize as you're praying that there is no one in my life who deserves that prayer. So then you have to go, who in the body of Christ might be praying this prayer against their mm. adversaries? Who are, well, do we have um, victims of institutional sexual abuse within the church? You better believe we do. Do we have young black men and women in American society dying because of systemic injustice? You bet we do. Do we have um, 
church uh, Christians incarcerated in China for the, yeah, do they have legitimate feelings of rage at, at their adversaries? They do. Do those need to be brought to speech? They do. And so the text becomes a way for me to bear my brothers and sisters' burdens in Christ, to mourn with those who mourn. Ellen Davis says the Psalms of, of, of imprecation give scripts for the entire body to take up the prophetic responsibility of the church to condemn injustice, right? And then at an even deeper level, like say when I'm praying um, the Psalms of imprecation, the cursing Psalms, you know, where are you, Lord? Why haven't you intervened? You know, uh, do the wicked just you know, in Psalm 10, that's the big deal. The, the wicked are saying, I can get away with oppression because there is no God. He can't be counted on to act. And the psalmists are like, um, that shouldn't be true. <laughs> you shouldn't be able to say that and get away with it. You know, then I'm praying that um, last summer in the midst of another major racial awakening mm-hmm. in this country, in a, in a in my context of Memphis, I'm in a 90 plus percent black neighborhood, deeply exploited by economic injustice. I'm less than a mile from where Dr. King was assassinated. Now I have words to pray um, with my black brothers and sisters, but I also then have to wonder, uh, is there anybody, and again, this is Ellen, one of Ellen Davis's lines, is there anybody who might want to pray this song about me or about us? Right. Yeah. And you start. So, so then it becomes a way of saying, uh, is there indictment in my life? And that's another interesting thing the Psalms do about justice. You know, Psalm 139. We love Psalm 139. It's so sweet. Yeah. You know, you knit me in my mother's womb. It ends with the psalmist being like, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Right. We leave that part out. But then after that, it says, God, search me and know me. Test me. Right. Psalm 7. Judge me according to my righteousness. These scripts seem to be saying, like, God, I want to cast my lot with your just and righteous people. Like, hold me up to that standard. That is not something that we are likely to sing or pray, right? But it's actually very similar to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a way of God giving us a line that if we say it, obligates us to a certain way of life, you know? Which is one of the powerful ways that singing works on us because songs are like, uh, this is Gordon Wenham's point, songs are like oaths. They obligate us to certain behavior. We praise certain things. We commit ourselves to certain ways with God. That's powerful. So we're losing a lot. Mm. But but all that stuff that I'm saying, again, requires the church to take a much broader look at itself and the way we think about what we're doing when we gather and what we think about when we're doing praying, we think about life with God's all about. Uh, A lot of what you're saying it strikes me that um, there's a sort of, uh, I mean, it has been over the course of the best part of a century, a, a growing tendency towards an individualistic faith. Mm. It's about me and my salvation, me yes. and my relationship with God. And in if that is your your model, then where on earth do you put the words you've just been talking about right. if they're not your experience? But but what exactly. you're describing is is a faith that is not individualistic at all. It, we're all completely That's interlinked. Right. And yet actually right. it leads us back to a focus on ourselves in a different way. Yes, yes. And I think that's, well, first of all, like just like as a Bible reader, I would say if your view of God is reduced to like me and God, you will never read the Bible well. Like you will misread just about every verse. Uh, I mean, it's it's incredible how de 
humanizing that kind of hyper individualistic focus is. Um, but you know, if you think about the Psalms as not just individual scripts to be prayed, but as kind of a, um, an authoritative book of prayers and songs, right? And a lot of, um, again, none of this is particularly innovative for me. Uh, in Bible scholarship, where Psalm scholars have moved is to say, it's not a random collection either. There's a shape to the whole. So uh, lament runs through all of it, but it, it does seem to be heavily focused at the beginning and go all the way towards the end. Or for instance, you begin in Psalm 1 with the, the flourishing life being a life lived in obedience to God's law, and in Psalm 2, a life lived in obedience to God's kingdom. And and then there's, at the end, the last five Psalms are just praise, 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 praise. So it begins in fidelity and it ends in praise. In the middle, there's all this misery, right? <laughs> Among other things, you know? And um, and so, so this book, of Psalms seems to be crafted intentionally. So here's what happens. You know, one, one thing you could say is, oh, look, the Bible, you know, the Psalms give us scripts for all seasons. So if you're sad, you can go to Psalm dot, dot, dot. And if you're happy, you can go to Psalm dot, dot. And that's of some value. There's, there's something good about that. But, but more, if you say, this is our script, hmm. right? And we do it continually, Right like in my practice of trying to read the Psalms daily, which is the practice of, of many, like if you're, if you're reading the Psalms regularly, vast majority of guides to daily prayer include this, then, and if that was reflecting in your worship, every time you gather, you know, some days I'm going to be feeling miserable and the Psalm is going to give me a script designed to be sung or prayed when I'm miserable. But quite often, it will be actually out of sync with how I feel. And the same thing is true with singing. Sometimes I will feel like lamenting and be given words for praise. Sometimes I will feel like praise and be giving words to lament. And I think what a lot of us do is go, oh, just doesn't fit me. This is just not where I am right now. And I understand that that cognitive dissonance can be painful. But I think the design is to say, it's not about me. This is about a community learning to live with God. And so every time I pray or sing, I am being invited to pray and sing alongside others, right? And I'm and others are being invited to pray and sing along with me. And that is is a hyper in like that's that's like a um <laughs> to use language that we like to use now, that sense that like, well, sometimes this doesn't really fit with where I am. That's, that's not, a, that's not a bug. That's a feature of the psalmic okay, system. Yeah. Right. You know, like that's, that's how it's designed. You know, you, you've got to deal with that, mm-hmm. you know, which isn't to say that worship leaders aren't um, invited to think, you know, about where you are in the church year or, or, or if there's been a tragedy or, you know, that you can't shape things to try to, sing with the people where they are. But, but I do think there's something really special about like the way that um, continual reading mm-hmm. of the Psalms, uh, lectionary style. Again, I have some concerns about lectionary, but, but that idea that the texts are given, the Psalms are fixed. There's something powerful about that because it works us through the language lessons from start to finish, from A to Z, and then you start back over. And that's how I think we become fluent speakers in psalmies, which means that we'll be better, more fluent songwriters 
in Psalmies, you know? I, I was telling my students, um, we did, like I said, we just taught for six weeks on the Psalms in this worship and wisdom class I'm teaching, I've been writing. And I went for a run and I was, I was listening to a podcast and somebody said something that had nothing to do with anything, but it triggered all this grief and anger in my own life. And I paused the podcast and I'm on the run and I spent, you know, the next, I'm not a great runner. So it was only another 20 minutes, <laughs> but you know, I spent the next 20 minutes, like praying sort of forcefully and angrily with to God about this experience. And when I got done and I was like in the shower reflecting on that, I realized, I think my prayer on my run sort of followed the pattern of a lot of the Psalms, but it's not like I was trying to, that's just, what came out, you know? Mm. So to me, that was like a minor, tiny victory that if you think about the Psalms as like learning a second language, the language of faith, like that was like um, when you're learning an actual second language and you have a successful conversation with the shopkeeper in the country that you've moved to, you know? And you're like, yes, I'm learning the language, you know? Like, yeah, I felt like, yes, I was angry. I felt miserable. I didn't suppress that. I, I, I've learned a little bit more of the language of faith. And it's, I think it's a powerful experience. But I don't think I would have had that experience if I wasn't sort of every day kind of trying to take the Psalms as they come, you know, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's a pedagogy to the way they come to us day in and day out, whether we like them or feel like them or not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is putting you on the spot slightly, um, yeah. but can you think of encourage, uh, areas of encouragement when you look around at, at places, people that you think are, are doing something well in this area? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, a lot of people have asked that. I think in our context, um, there's a couple of things that I, I've found really encouraging. One is there are more and more people trying to write arrangements of the Psalms Um I really like uh, poor Bishop Hooper. If you've listened to their yeah. every Psalm project on Spotify, um, my friend Drew Johnson has an outstanding organization called the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College in New York. They have a podcast called The Biblical Mind, and there's some on the Psalms, and 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 they interview the poor Bishop Hooper people, um, and you know they are very clear. We are not writing songs for every line of the Psalms. And part of that is about singability. Mm. Um, they're trying to make these things accessible. So there's gains and losses to that, right? Um, because, you know, a lot of my students, I had them praying and singing the Psalms and comparing the written Psalms to renditions of the Psalms. And one of the things they noticed is, um, like, you'll find Psalm 70, is it 73? Um, where the psalmist says, you know, basically the psalmist goes, uh, you know, God, you're great. But I, and then it says, but I almost forgot that. And then the body of the Psalm is, I envy the arrogant. Yeah. They have no burdens. They like oppress the poor and get praise. It's like all this misery. And then at the end, he comes around. Yeah. And some of my students found several renditions of that Psalm that only have the bit at the end. Oh, okay. So it's like, they, you know, you've, you've, you know, that's dodgy, right? Like you're like, you're like trying to get to the good stuff at the end without going on the journey. So that's the danger of what, of what um, adaptations are doing, you know? So caveat, but from my experience with poor Bishop Hooper, I've really found a lot of their um, rendition of Psalms very powerful uh, in 
in Australia, I'm headed to that part of the world. The Sons of Korah have tried to yep. do a lot of um, Psalms renditions, and there are lots of them that are doing this. Um, and I think that's encouraging. There, I think there's a, a, been a revival um, in attention to lament. Um, uh, I'm most familiar with uh, uh, Porter's Gate, yeah. which was, a, you know, they kind of came out of Bifrost music. I think there's a relationship there. Both of those have done more attention to lament, but there's a lot of that stuff going on and getting written. And so I think when churches um, look for resources, they've got more to choose from than ever. Um, uh, uh, Sandra McCracken writes mm-hmm. great music that includes a lot of Psalm-like or lament-like language. I also think that there is a rich tradition of um, the spirituals, the black community spirituals. You know, if you, if you look at, in fact, if you look at um, black theologians um, of all stripes, uh, the spirituals are a site of significant theological reflection. You know, so James Cone, who people know for, you know, black theology, black liberation, uh, has got a whole book on the Psalms and the blues, you know, not the Psalms and the blues, excuse me, the spirituals and the blues. Um, And so I think there is a lot of um, learning to be done from sort of, non-majority culture, non-white communities. Um, My caveat to that is my sense is that most church communities that have gotten in touch with kind of mainstream Christianity sing the hits. Mm. Um, And so that's not as encouraging. Um, But I do think these resources are there. And I do wonder, I mean, you know, it's funny. I finally bit the bullet. I'm on Zoom with my with my uh, New Zealand students. And so I finally was like, okay, we're going to do this one day. So we we sung one of the Psalms in like chant style. So I pulled up a on YouTube Zoom. video oh. <laughs> on Zoom. Pulled up a YouTube video. I was like, everybody's got to mute themselves. Yeah. But I expect you to be singing, you know. Um and the responses from myself and everybody were like incredibly positive. Mm-hmm. And it just made me wonder, like, maybe, I mean, nobody wants to do that. Like, in, if you're not in a church that's used to chant, you know, or just kind of like the repetitive, um, if, if you're not, if that's not your habit, you're not going to want to do that. But I, it almost made me think, like, would this be a good discipline for us to like throw through, you know, I mean, if you, if you threw in one metrical psalm a week, you know, once a week, we're going to sing one of the Psalms straight through. I don't know what you do when you get to Psalm 119. I'm sure the liturgical traditions have some resources there. But, you know, I mean, in three years, you'd have sung through the Psalter just doing one Psalm a week, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe we practice that in small groups or something. Maybe we, maybe the, but, you know, I do think uh, my hunch is that um, the high liturgy churches have some resources that the lower liturgy churches could learn from, even though my sense is that, that nobody's doing this perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, you know, one thing that I didn't say on, in that first Twitter thread, um, I, uh, kingdom language, kingship language has made a really strong comeback. My hunch is that that's, you know, guys like, um, N.T. Wright and, and Christopher Wright and, um, uh, uh, Scott McKnight and and they all uh, rhyme. 
What's worse? <laughs> yeah, they're all right. Yeah, they're wrong. You know, um, or someone like, uh, you know, I'm impressed with like someone like Tim Keller. Yeah. You know, their emphasis on the kingdom of God has really, it's really encouraging, actually. I think that language has um, really affected the songs that are being written. That's a hunch. Mm-hmm. I can't argue that out. Um, now, what's remarkable about that is that the chief task of the king is to do justice. So the idea that we've reclaimed kingship language. I mean, just go read Psalm 72, endow the king with your justice, O Lord. It has like six different, the, the English versions can't even capture how many different words for the poor in Hebrew are used, right? Like, it, it, like just go look at what Psalm 72 celebrates about the king. Um, what the king does is justice, right? Um, and so it's remarkable, or Matthew quoting Isaiah, uh, here is the servant and only Lord. Here, 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 uh, here is my servant, my chosen whom, one in whom I delight. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to victory. Right? That's what, you know, bruise reed, he will not break. Smoldering wick, that passage. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's remarkable that we've reclaimed kingship language, but, but edited out the justice focus. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, that can, that's a hopeful thing that can be reclaimed, is that, that in our teaching, if we're talking about the kingdom of God, and if in our prayers and singing for the kingdom of God, we can reclaim the emphasis on the king's justice, which is delivering justice, and which in the Psalms certainly and definitely in the New Testament, it's a minor theme in the Psalms, but it is there, and it shows up, and I think in a larger way in the in the New Testament, the just judgment of God is designed to lead the oppressor to repentance, mm-hmm. and therefore is gospel. Right? Like like when Revelation says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new heavens and the new earth. That vision that John's having is trafficking in language from Isaiah, where the kings of the earth have in some sense been conquered by the kingdom of God. Right? Which is what Psalm 2 says. The nations are murmuring against God's just way. So repent, kings of the earth. Submit to God's kingdom. Right? So God's just Judgment is good news because it is just delivering judgment for the victims, for the victims of rape and economic exploitation and slavery and war crimes. But it is also good news because it is just delivering judgment intended to bring all people to saving, repenting faith. Right? I love how Psalm scholars point out, you know, these angry Psalms melt my enemies like snails and slime. You know, part of what's happening is there's a process to these psalms. They're, they're giving the psalmist, the singer, the words that they need to work through those emotions. But one thing that psalm scholars note is that a major theme is that they surrender retribution to God. So I yeah. can't remember who put it this way. They drive the psalmist's enemies into the hands of God and leave them there. Right? And we know what God does with enemies if we read scripture. Sometimes he smites them. Right? Because unrelenting evil to the poor and oppressed will not go on forever. Because unrelenting evil against the poor and oppressed is an affront to God and to the world and to creation. So, yes, sometimes God does bring just forceful judgment on the enemy. But sometimes, often, always holding out the hope of there is repentance and healing. And forgiveness, right? 
sometimes Saul's become Paul's, right? I mean, so, so that is, is, is that dynamic is, is native to the Psalms. It's native to prayer. It's native to worship. It's native to the theme of justice in scripture. Um, and we need to reclaim it if, if we want to sing um, biblically about, about justice. And I do want to say this um, uh, among the many things that I've said, one other thing that I want to say is, you know, and again, UK, your, your listeners are all over the world. So, but, but in the U S you know, when there's a, a tragedy, um, when there is an act of injustice against black people and black brothers and sisters in Christ, forget those in the media, but when Christians respond um, and there is emotion of anger in their words, it is so common for white Christians to respond like, why are they so angry? That just doesn't seem like the gospel to me. That seems like an inappropriate response. And if they would just open up their stinking Bibles to the middle where the Psalms are, they would discover that the angry words of the oppressed are on every single page of the only authorized hymn book and prayer book that we've been given. So it's an example of where we reject the feelings, the emotions, the outcry of our brothers and sisters which God has given us. It could, it's, it's huge betrayal, right? But unless we're taught, right? Unless we're taught, unless we're taught, allow ourselves to be instructed by the Psalms, by scripture, by worship that sounds like Psalms scripture, we're going to continue to have that kind of disconnect, that kind of problem, which, which really gets in the way of, of, of more just action together, more peacemaking action together, in the world, you know? So this is, I mean, this is, um, I mean, your worship leaders know this, that worship is a life and death issue. It's, it's, it, 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 the church stands or falls in some ways on the way that we worship God. Um, cause as the Psalms say, those who worship idols become like them. So we either worship the living God and become like him and justice characterizes our lives because it characterizes God's life or we worship an idol and we become increasingly incompetent in, in being worshipers of God and being workers of justice and righteousness and mercy and love and, and neighborliness in his world. Michael, there are so many other things I would like to ask you, <laughs> but I'm aware that our time is running on. So listen, I'm just so thankful for you taking the time to uh, to provoke and challenge <laughs> and inspire yes. Um, and uh, yeah, really grateful. So thanks, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really fun to talk, and I'm I'm grateful to know about what you guys are doing. And um, blessings on you as you as you keep up that good work of helping the people of God meet with God. It's it's tremendous work. Thank you.